people through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson. On FBI 94.5. Hello there, FBI radio listener. Yes, Joey Watson here for Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get to delve into the record collection of one person and talk about the stories that come with them. Today, Eva Cox. Eva fled Nazi occupation in Vienna only months after she was born. With a distant father, her mother raised her almost on her own. In the UK, in Rome, before eventually settling in Australia, where, as a post-war migrant, she grew up on the outskirts. It was these experiences, and and others, that would push Eva into the left-wing circles of Australia in uh, in the early 60s and 70s. She, along with the likes of Germaine Greer, was part of an underground left-wing intellectual group, the Sydney Push. From there, she would become a foundational figure in Australia's second-wave feminist movement. Now in her 80s, she is a sociologist, and today... Eva Cox, a warm welcome to Out of the Box. Thank you. <laughs> Eva, you suggested to me that uh, an alternative title to this episode of Out of the Box would have the, the words rap bag and change maker in them. <laughs> can you, well, can you it take is me a bit of a that? puzzle, sort of. I mean, you gave a bit of my history, but working out how that actually added up to somebody who grew up from a fairly early age deciding that if he didn't like things, he tried to change them. <laughs> I mean, the first person was, the, was a kindergarten teacher when I was three years old who when they handed out, so it was my second day at kindergarten, I was very excited, and they handed out the percussion instruments and I had my eye on a drum and she said, no, you can't have a drum. The boys get the drums and the cymbals and the girls get the tambourines and the triangles. Now, if you want to create a feminist, give them something that makes less noise. <laughs> so that started me on the a track. A taste of early feminism. Um, Eva, you were born in 1938 uh, in the very European city of Vienna, Austria. What happened in Austria just after your birth? Well, I was born in February, and I think it was the 10th of March, a gentleman called Hitler marched into Vienna. And sometimes that's set up as though, you know, he was invading Vienna, but he was actually very strongly greeted by Vienna, which was a very cosmopolitan, classical music, long-term history, civilised nation. And one of the things I think always confuses everybody is how can something like this happen when the people went out and cheered Hitler, who was already persecuting Jews and running Germany with an iron fist, so to speak. It's a scary trying to thought. Pu- it's trying to push it. And when I was, uh, I think, 13 months old, my father had got out via the underground to join the British Army in Palestine, and my mother went to train went on a train took me to england with no money and nothing and uh, i grew up there as a refugee child during the second world war what kind of life did you have in england well it wasn't too bad i mean because i was small i didn't realize it i mean my mother was sent to a uh, place called cromer in norfolk which was a very strange place for somebody who'd been a medical student in her final year of medicine in sophisticated vienna <laughs> to suddenly find herself in a in a house by the beach with no electricity. It's, <laughs> and a, very stark, it's a very stark contrast. Mm, it was a huge contrast, and I think it probably damaged her in varying ways because she didn't sort of quite do it. And then after that, she got sent to be a maid for a while because they moved all of the refugees away from the land, the coastline, in case they signaled 
submarines, you know, which also says something about the attitude towards refugees. No, so can you take me through that? They moved her inland. They moved her inland. So where you were originally living in the sea. I mean, what what were the living conditions when you first got there? Can you? Well, I can't remember. I was a small child, but from what I've heard is we were living in a sort of house in a village in Norfolk with an old... Quaker woman who'd offered billets to, uh, you know, to refugees. And that was, you know, before the war broke out. But as soon as the war broke out, the British government was worried about the fact that amongst the refugees, does this sound familiar? There were going to be traitors that might be signalling the submarines with lights on the cliffs. So they moved (laughs) all of the refugees 30 miles inland so that they couldn't signal. And I think that was a sort of a bit of an indication of the fact that, you know, you're always an outsider in that situation. You're you're different, I mean, in the sense that you don't belong. And I think that sort of really set in mind. I mean, two things happen when people feel they don't belong. One is they can try very hard to belong, and I probably did an odd moment, or they can sort of decide that maybe they need to fix why they can't belong. And But that's a hard one because you've got to, in that, have some sense of your own ability to change things. And somewhere along the line, I'm not quite sure how when it happened, I got the sense that, A, I was independent, I had to do things for myself, which is probably an effect of all of that moving around and being put into foster parents briefly and various other things, and B, that I could change things. And it was probably some of the dramatic shifts in my life because we were in England all through the war and I didn't see my father because he hadn't joined the army in England so they wouldn't give him home leave. And he turned up after the war and took us both of us to Rome where he got a job with the UN settling refugees, interestingly enough. Interesting, yeah. Because <laughs> he I, was one I, himself. I want to yeah. get to your father in the moment, but I'm wondering if we can get into some music first. Sure. What, what can we play in tribute to your childhood in England? Well, I thought, I was trying to think of what would be appropriate, and I remembered as a very small child, my mother teaching me a Christmas carol, which was O Tannenbaum, which when people hear it, they might recognise. It's also played as the Christmas tree in England, in English very often. But it also later on had an association as the socialists picked it up for the tune of the red flag. So it sort of <laughs> seemed to start me on the idea that as I had to be very quiet about the fact I could sing a German song as an early to small child because the Germans were the enemy, but also that the song itself changed in my head. Somewhat of an anthem to your life, Eva Cox. This is the Nat King Cole version of Old Tenenbaum. Nein, auch im Winter, wenn es neid. O Tannenbaum, O Tannenbaum, wie treu sind deine Blätter. O Tannenbaum, O Tannenbaum, Du kannst mir sehr 
Nat King Cole singing in German, Old Tenenbaum, taking us back to the childhood of foundational Australian second wave feminist, sociologist and childhood refugee Eva Cox. This is out of the box. Eva, when did you see your father for the first time? He came to England on leave at some stage and there was a strange person I had not seen for you know, whatever it was, seven years. I was a baby when we last saw, and it was not an easy relationship. It never was an easy relationship, which wasn't helped by the fact that even then he was a world saver, and I think I mm. <laughs> managed to inherit that, you know. So he... So where, where had he been? He'd been in Palestine in the British Army. Was that a, a standard thing for, well, he for went a, out... a Jewish refugee to do? To, to, to Well, there was an underground that took you from... Uh, Europe to Palestine, you know, they went over in the boats and became thing because a lot of countries wouldn't take refugees. Mm. Australia wouldn't take refugees. It took a very small number at that time. I discovered afterwards. My great, my grandmother, and the two uh, two of sibling of uh, my mother's siblings, did get to Australia because she'd met an Australian dentist at an art auction in Vienna and they'd stayed corresponding and they actually sponsored them. But we were, you know, Australia was very mean about taking Jewish refugees. They didn't think we'd fit. They didn't even think we'd fit when I arrived here later on. In 1948, they still took a limited number. So there's very much echoes of what's happening now around the refugee stuff in our history there. Had you had the opportunity to live with your father before you'd come to Australia? Well, we lived together in Rome. My father got himself a senior job in the United Nations in Rome, settling refugees, which was a bit ironic in a sense. (laughs) That's quite a trajectory. It was a trajectory. It was a big trajectory for me because we lived in spare rooms where we billeted in England and when we arrived in Rome we had a a flat which had five bedrooms, 
three bathrooms and a maid, which I reckon completely ruined my sense of class. <laughs> I used to go out with the portiera's daughter, you know, the, the, the daughter of the bod that minded the block of flats. I used to turn up at their... They had a few communist demonstrations there at the same time as I was in a very enviable position because I was a child that got American PX rations with lots of chewing gum in them, which gave me a lot of status in the area. So it's no wonder I actually grew up with a fairly radical viewpoint. <laughs> what kind of... Uh, trips would your father take you on, Eva? Oh, not too many. He took me out to the camps once or twice where they were actually putting people, you know, trying to find homes for people. So I became fairly socially aware at those sorts of stages. Yeah. And we were there for a couple of years. But then my mother wanted to join my grandfather and the rest of her family in Australia. So she started pushing for us to come to Australia. My father was a bit reluctant about that because changing the world was easier if you were in Europe, but he did eventually come here and follow us out. But at that stage, uh, the marriage broke down for fairly obvious reasons and a few less obvious ones. <laughs> Take me through them. Oh, I mean, my father, as I say, wanted to save the world and was not particularly interested in getting a job and settling down, and my mother desperately wanted to settle down. He also had a penchant for getting off with other women, <laughs> which my mother also found out about, which I also found out a bit a bit later when one of the people I met in the pub many years later said to me, is your name Eva Hauser? And I said, yes. She said, any relation? He said, any relation to Richard Hauser? And I said, yes, he's my father. He said, well, your father got off with my wife. Can I get off with you? <laughs> and I said, no, you're too old and too fat. <laughs> That's quite a question. I was about 18. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely shocking. Um, how did they go their separate ways, your mother and father? Oh, my father just walked out on her. And and your mother? My mother then sort of went and did various jobs and trained as a nurse and did various other things. And I went to school here at Bondi Beach Public and mm -hmm. Sydney Girls High. And did did your did your father eventually remarry? Yes, I mean that's an interesting story because he actually there was a person at his place when I was around twelve or thirteen. And her name was Hepzibah Menuhin. And I knew that name because I had a book which was talking about child music geniuses. And Hepzibah and her elder brother Yehudi were in the book. So suddenly this book I'd had from the age of about seven or eight, which had lots of stories in it, I had met a person that was actually in that book. Right. In person. And that... It had a big effect on you because uh, when you're a little is, kid, you don't expect these seeing. sorts of things, I guess. And this is my father. It sort of added to my father's sense of status. But later on, it turned out that they were having a, an affair. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, 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 my knowledge of classical music isn't great. I didn't know uh, who Hepzibah Menuhin was uh, before I was researching this show. But we're, but I mean, th th these are big international Stars, artists. I mean, yes. we're, we're talking about if this was FBI was around in the 1930s, we're talking about a rotation getting yeah. played every day. Big, yeah. big deal, right? I mean, that that that's shocking. Did your, and when you did meet, your mother when you not? meet them day to, you know on a day to day basis and find out that they're in love with your father, it really <laughs> sort of does tend to tip one's world around a bit. Yeah. <laughs> did your mother know? Was your mother aware that your father had had found somebody else? Or they'd been separate. They'd be... left left her for for a superstar, more or less. No, I mean. he didn't leave her for a superstar. They met some five years later. Oh, okay. You know, so by that stage, he'd been going around having sex with various other people in Sydney. So <laughs> <laughs> found out around the time but yeah no probably about three years later and of course it was a big sort of hoo-ha because she was she was married to one of the Lindsay Nicholases that uh, the Nicholases who used to own Aspro and and had been living in Victoria with a grazier husband so when she 
you know, was divorced by her husband for adultery and it appeared in the pages of the truth as stories like that appeared. You know, there was a note down the bottom saying, you know, the correspondent, in other words, the person that he'd been having, she'd been having sex with was Richard Hauser, but that was all the publicity my father got. (laughs) 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 I was about 16 at the time, so then he married Hepzibah. Do you think it... um informed or impacted your feminism to some extent, knowing the way your father treated your mother? or I probably wasn't as conscious of that at that particular stage, but I remember having conversations later with Hepzibah. And it's an interesting thing because there were three men you and children. Yehudi was the boy and the eldest, and mm. then Hepzibah was the middle and the girl, and there was a younger one called Yalta. And... So Yehudi became the hero violinist, you know, the young violinist, and Hepzibah became the accompanist. She did have a separate career on her own, but she always felt as though she was the accompanist. She always felt that she was not given the same status as Yehudi, even though she was an extraordinarily good pianist. But the interesting point she used to make was that Yalta, who nobody's ever heard of, who actually played the cello, she said she thought Yalta was probably the most musical of them all, but they didn't need anybody at that stage. They had the genius and the accompanist, so there wasn't any space for that. So, I mean, I did a a program for the ABC at one stage after Hepzibah died, pointing that out, yeah. Um, Should we play some some Hepzibah in tribute? That would be very nice. Let's do that.
Beethoven's Violin Sonata Number 9 in A major for the particularly keen FBI listener there. <laughs> the piano, played by Hepzibah Menuhin, who in addition to her fame as a musician in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, was also the stepmother of my guest on Out of the Box today, Eva Cox. Eva, a much better pianist than she was a stepmother, perhaps? <laughs> no, she was a very good stepmother. <laughs> really? My father was much more the problem than my stepmother. But it wasn't a particularly strained relationship. Oh, no, it was a good relationship her. with her. I just couldn't actually understand what she saw in my father, who <laughs> behaved in a, in a thoroughly objectionable manner, which <laughs> reinforced my feminism, I think, yes. <laughs> In the wake of your parents' divorce, uh, where were you and your mother living? In oh, we were living in a flat in Bondi, as one tended to do in those days when one arrived. You sort of moved down there, and I went to the local public primary school. I mean, I had a fairly normal adolescent upbringing, except I was always a fairly bolshy kid that used to argue about things and get involved. But I, you know, followed along with lots of things. I mean, I can still remember one of the highlights of that thing was this was the beginning of rock and roll. You know, this was the... Yeah. Early, you know, late 40s, early 50s, and Bill Haley and the Comets appeared at that stage with Rock Around the Clock, and we all got incredibly excited and oh. went off and went to the stadium. <laughs> at that stage, the stadium at Rushcutters Bay, which is long gone, but there used to be a stadium there, and that's where you had all of the big music events. But that was one of the very first ones where they brought in this international rock star and filled the stadium with all of these 13 and 14 year old girls who thought this was the best thing since sliced bread, you know, and and, and and cheered and carried on and really enjoyed it. (laughs) I I want to get to Bill Haley in a moment. Um, But first, can we talk a bit about school? How how did you fit in in school in Australia? Well, I went to a, um, I had had a sort of odd schooling thing. I went to a school in England uh, where I was, I think, in fourth class. And I went to a school in Italy where I got put, which was originally in a, uh, an American-style uh, international school where I was put into fifth grade. I went to an Italian school where I was put into fifth grade. And by this stage, I sort of became firmly convinced that I was never going to get anywhere because this was a period over about two years where I'd managed to go sort of, you know, from fourth grade uh, you know, to fifth grade backwards, in a sense, and going into fifth class here and then having another year before I hit high school, I think I had ended up with ideas above my station because a lot of the stuff I'd done, I seemed to have done before, even though I was still at the young, young end of the age thing. So going to a selective high school, I blew things in the first week by telling the uh, history teacher that she'd got it wrong when she told us that the Last Supper was in, in uh, Florence. And I'd lived in Italy for two years, and I knew it was in Milan, and I antagonised this history. I was right. That was the worst thing. I discovered being right didn't protect you from being put upon, but I was just seen as a as a as a stirrer and a difficult child who talked too much and tended to object to things she didn't like. Did you get into fights at school? Not fist fights. I did have a fist fight in a in the bus going home at one stage, and somebody told me did some anti-refo stuff, you know, go back to Jerusalem and various other things and sat on top of me and I think I bit her elbow and showed teeth marks. <laughs> <laughs> Just about the only time it actually sort of got physical. But there was always a, a certain level of anti-Semitism and anti-refo type stuff around, which was part of the sort of the school experiences that mm. I had. My, my grandparents were also Jewish refugees uh, fleeing the Nazis. And for, for them, I think particularly for my grandfather, there was... Um, 
a very a- aggressive attempt to to assimilate mm. uh, to become this kind of menzies loving i mean they were in melbourne so afl supporting <laughs> version of an australian w- was that similar for you no to give my parents in their diversity things that i mean they yes they wanted to become part of australia yes they spoke english they learned english they you know were very much involved in things like that and became part of it but they did not, as far as I remember, ever talk about sport. <laughs> so they totally failed that particular set of things. Were you Jewish? Yes, but not particularly religious. I, I had no idea what being Jewish was because I lived in England and didn't know any and then lived in Italy and went with my best friend to the Catholic Church and wondered if I stuck my tongue out at the altar whether the God would strike me dead. <laughs> uh, but having survived that, I came out here and I was sent off to a couple of uh, you know, Jewish learning type things but I think at that stage I had some serious doubts about the existence of a supreme being the world didn't seem to be nearly ordered enough for anything like that and I think by the time I hit high school I still went to Jewish scripture but I think I had started to define myself as an atheist or an agnostic and I still do define myself in that sort of category particularly one Easter I can remember I decided to do a tour of all of the uh, religious instruction classes which were on at the same time they were all talking about the same thing they were talking about the Last Supper or they were talking about uh, Passover which happens to be the Jewish equivalent (laughs) and I thought you know they're all banging on about the same stuff and (laughs) it doesn't seem much point in picking any of them so I think you know I sort of gave up on religion around that stage. What were the options for you when you graduated? Well, I'd managed to get into trouble in my final year of high school, which was 1954, which was the year the Queen's visit occurred the first time, the new Queen. And the cover of my exercise book had a portrait of the Queen with a double chin on it. (laughs) You know, it was just a very bad portrait. And I shaded the double chin. And my French teacher, because I'd become national, uh, naturalised, I wasn't a citizen, my father didn't apply for it for some reason, I could never quite work out. I think he thought he might have been rejected because of some of his past. Never quite sure which bit. But so, And I had to get a witness who'd known me for five years, and my mother didn't have many friends that would have fitted into the category. They had to be, they had to be some sort of professional. So I asked my French teacher, who liked me, and who was a bit of a, a funny sort of fuss pot. And she saw this exercise book and decided that I'd drawn a beard on the portrait of the Queen. And I got dragged off to the headmistress. I got threatened with expulsion. I got told if I didn't pass my next exams, I'd be put down from year five, which was then the final year into year four, and various other things. So I promptly failed my half-yearly exams <laughs> under such pressure and then left school and went and did it as a private study student. So I didn't actually matriculate because I had to drop Latin because I couldn't do it in this private coaching college and that left me with only four subjects so I ended up doing half a year at a kindergarten college, training college, which didn't only wanted the leaving and not matriculation and that I decided was boring and I wanted to go to university so I went back and did matriculated via TAFE and went to university a year later and when I got to university got involved in all sorts of other stuff. I um, we mentioned um Bill Haley and the Comets earlier, and I yes. mean, this is a period that in Europe and the US that rock and roll was yes. starting and things were starting to swell. Well, up. this was a bit yes, yeah, so sure. I, I've heard a, a lot of um, I've heard a lot of particularly leftists, um, maybe maybe of a similar vintage to you, express that the 
uh, way counterculture was developing mm. in Europe and um, and and and, the, and Britain well, and Europe. Yeah. It, it didn't quite develop in the same way in Australia, and it makes me a bit upset. I mean, do you do you do you agree with that? Is I'm that, not is sure. That I think that they're being a bit tough on it. I mean, if I think back to the time that I mean, around Bill Haley, what happened at that stage, which was really important if you're looking at post-war history, was in a sense a development of a teen culture. You know, the development of a pop culture, the development of he- heroes for those people in their early and mid-teens. And I think in that it also bred some of the sorts of rebellions that came up somewhat later. I mean, yes, they happened in Europe when you got things like the 1968 sort of, you know, student rebellions in uh, in Germany and France. And you got the thing. But the social movements that started in Europe and in the USA in the 1950s and 60s did come here. Mm. I think, you know, I'm not quite sure why they're saying it didn't come here because there was certainly a, a lot of anti-war movements in terms of Vietnam. I mean, this is after I left school. But if you go back, and I think the significance of Bill Haley is the significance of the fact that that was the beginning of teenagers seeing themselves as a separate category. Because yeah. if you go back to the 30s, we weren't. And in the wartime, we weren't. But all of a sudden, in the nine, late 1950s, early 1960s, via popular music, mm. teenagers started defining themselves as teenagers. And I think that's the importance of the Bill Haley one. The beginning of rock and roll and very yeah. excited about it. What yeah. Bill Haley track should we play? Uh, rock Around the Clock. That was a big one. <laughs> one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, a rock, we're going to rock around the clock tonight. Wait, the glad bag's on, join me home. We'll have some fun when the clock strikes one. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. We're going to rock, rock, rock till broad daylight. We're going to rock, going to rock around the clock tonight. When the clock strikes two, three, and four, if the band slows down, we'll yell for more. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. We're going to rock. 
Bill Haley and the Comets there with the 50s rock and roll standard rock around the clock. If you were thinking how they don't make them like they used to, don't thank me, but Eva Cox. <laughs> she is my guest on Out of the Box today. Eva, I want to talk a little bit about becoming a feminist and getting into politics. Uh, I've, I'm tracing this to your involvement in Girl Guides, but it wasn't no, Girl it wasn't Guides really girl itself. Guides, no, no, it was a... It was, it was a friend you made along the way. It wasn't a friend I made along the way, which is quite interesting. I mean, when I mentioned girl guides and and sort of and politics more generally, when I was twelve, I wanted to join the girl guides, and my father recommended me to a friend he'd met through some political activist stuff, who was a woman called Edna Ryan, who Ed- ended Edna up Ryan, being fairly right. famous. You know, for uh, as a later thing, she was one of the people that fought for equal pay and various other things, and we run an Edna Ryan Award. But anyhow, I mean, Edna's daughter, Julia, who's the same age as I did, used to go to Waverley Girl Guides, and I used to go on a Friday night round to the Ryans for dinner. Now, this was 1951, which is a year which won't ring a bell with most young people, but it was actually a really significant political year in Australia because it was the year that there was the communist referendum. Menzies had tried to bar, ban the Communist Party, and they found it was un, the High Court found it was unconstitutional. So he put on a referendum to ban a political party. Now, actually, writing in your constitution to ban a political party is not a good thing to do. So there was a huge reaction against that, and they lost, fortunately. So we can't bar political parties under the constitution. But it was a very hot issue, and it really raised the temperature of the sort of the, the political things. And the Ryans had been in the Communist Party in the early part of the century, and then had moved to the Labour Party and became very active in the Labour Party, particularly Edna. She became the mayor of Fairfield and various other things. But there was that sort of thing where people were in their backyards burning documents, you know, getting rid of evidence that they'd been involved with the Communist Party because this was the time of the Iron Curtain and, you know, Mm. idea that communism was about to take over. So I learned my politics on the way to the Girl Guides. (laughs) I think the only thing I learned in the Girl Guides was how to make, you know, various knots I mean, that was quite useful, but it didn't actually stimulate my interest in that because out of that, if you combine my experience in kindergarten of wanting to play a drum, plus my early experience in Rome going along to the odd demonstration with, you know, with my Italian friends and then, you know, in Australia getting involved in politics. Can you take me through that? When when did you start becoming politically active? Well, probably actively at the university because when I was... I mean, I arrived out here when I was 10. And I was sort of interested in politics, but, you know, this was Menzies' politics and it was all fairly boring and things like that. But then going to Julia's, I met people, you know, to have dinner with Julia and the Ryans. I mean, Edna and I stayed friends till she died, you know, which was just at the end of last century. But, you know, it actually made me understand what politics was about. Mm. It made me... It sort of fed into my sense that if I didn't like things, I should get into situations and change them and uh, to change them, which I think is something a lot of people don't get these days. If they don't like something, they go off to a demonstration. (laughs) But I wanted to change things. I didn't want to just demonstrate or turn up at things. I wanted to work out how the system worked. And they talked about it. So there was either 12-year-old sort of absorbing all of these ideas about how you could create change and didn't do much about it at high school. We probably had bits of conversation about it because this was the boring 1950s under, you, you know, Menzies and nothing much very much happened. But when I hit university, which was 1956, there were political 
clubs and Julia and I helped set up an, an ALP club which was actually opposed to the Labour club which was the Communist <laughs> Party club what, and this was, was around the... a split in there was a big split in the ALP at that stage where a lot of the right wing Catholics removed themselves from the party because they thought too many of the left wingers were too close to the <laughs> Communist Party so it was a very much a period where there was a huge amount of it and of course 1956 the other thing is it was the Hungarian Revolution when the Soviets marched into Hungary when it tried right. to free itself. So, so it was a very much a series of hot topical issues, and it was very. It was my first experience of getting up in the Wallace Theatre and sort of you know making a speech about it and getting booed because I said something which was misinterpreted <laughs> and things like that. But deciding, I think, I could actually stand up in front of a crowd of hundreds of students and say something sensible. A baptism so of fire. It was a baptism of fire. Was it radical fire. in itself, the fact that you were a, a woman at university in Australia in well, the Well, there were 50s? a fairly small number of us involved in things like that, and one of the arguments that was certainly put up about the formation of the women's movement, because towards the end of the 60s, we all became involved in things like the anti-war movement, the anti-Vietnam movement, and the things like that. Mm. And one of the things that stimulated the separation of the, of the women's movement from some other lefty type thing is they got sick of the blokes using them to make the coffee and sandwiches. Mm. You know, they, there was a strong feeling from a lot of the anti-war things, particularly in the USA, but it was, there was bits of it here, about the fact that women were not given equality of status, you know, despite the fact everybody talked about equality. It was not a, it was a sort of class equality about workers. Oh, yeah. and, and the other thing, I mean, I must throw into the thing because people don't realise that, is when I got a job, you know, between school and university... I got paid less than men did for doing exactly the same job because at that stage women got something like 75% of male wages for the same job and I can remember being extremely cross about that and going and getting a job in a grocery store rather than the Woolworth thing where I was in before because in gross, the grocery awards were equal for men and women mm. and also because Edna Ryan had been involved in equal pay. So, yes, there was much in that period that I realised that we were being discriminated against. I, I want to uh, push you more yep. on the women's movement in a yep. second, but before we get to that, uh, we come to a, a chapter of our interview now that I'm, I'm very excited about. Can you uh, paint a picture of the Sydney push? Well, I found that when I went to university, there was a group there, sort of loosely known as the Sydney Push, but they were the Sydney Libertarians, and they came out of the followers of John Anderson, who was an anarchist. So I was at this stage already playing around with socialism and, you know, and involved in the socialist stuff, but the anarchist stuff, for some reason or other, appealed to me mm. because I think I was already beginning to be somewhat suspicious of the structures of power, mm. and I thought one needed a way of unwinding it. So, but, uh, the, but the it Sydney was also push about, wasn't wasn't an anarchist group in the way that we think of one today. It was, well, it it was anarchist in the sense that it was anti-authoritarianism. And it was also anarchist in the way that it was about free love, and that was the reason it actually got talked about in Parliament. And, you know, <laughs> there were things. John Anderson, they wanted to get rid of him because he was preaching free love to students, and you know, there were issues at that stage. You couldn't get contraception and various other things. What did that mean for it to be about free love? Just lots of sex between friends? Lots or? of sex between friends and things like that. But it also had its sidelines. I mean, I can remember at one stage, one member, a male member of the push, demanding to have sex with me and saying, "You know, what's wrong with you?" And I said no, you know, have you got bourgeois inhibitions? And I said, and I t responded by saying, I thought free love meant you had to, that you had sex with people you wanted to, not just everybody who asked you. Mm. <laughs> and I think there was a 
lot of confusion about those sorts of things, but certainly we were strongly in favour of abortions, which were then illegal. I actually had an illegal abortion at one stage and various other things like that. Contraception was incredibly hard to get. So, yes, there was a strong push in the, in the broadest sense of trying to do that. And the libertarians were an interesting group to be part of because they talked a lot about politics and power and sex. And when you were an adolescent, they were interesting topics, as, as they still are in some ways. When did you get interested in women's politics? Was this during this period? Or well, I always was it? interested, but there, there was not much happening in women's politics. It sort of disappeared from view in a sense. There weren't women's groups in the 19... 50s and in the 1960s it sort of came back in you know Germaine published her book in 69 but the one that really hit me but it didn't become much a popular thing as I read Simone de Beauvoir when I was about 17 or 18 the second sex and what stuck in my mind that she said women are not born they are made you know that's why we're the second sex we're made in the image that men allow us to be made and that really stuck in my mind. What did that mean for your activism? What did that mean for the it change meant, that you wanted to see in the world? It meant that I really wanted serious change. I wanted to get out of a world, and it's one of the arguments I'm putting up at the moment about feminism. Feminism is not about doing it on male terms. There used to be a badge in the 70s, I want to reprint, which said women who want equality with men lack ambition because what we want to do is change the world. So those things that are valued by men, like war, commerce, money, <laughs> lots of those things are seen as part of the masculine construction of society. Mm. Leave out those things that are left to women, which is caring, which is social, relational, emotional, all of those things that don't fit under an economic banner, if you want to divide it this way. So I was interested, as were other people, in what would be a serious radical change, where we'd start valuing things like unpaid work, where we'd value care equally with being able to, you know, drive a tank. <laughs> how, how did you set out to achieve well, that I, in the Well, in 1972, which was just the year I decided I would go back to university, uh, Somebody, we had an election coming up, and following the American elections around that particular stage, we set up a group called the Women's Electoral Lobby, which was a Beatrice Faust, a feminist from Melbourne, had set that up. There were bits of feminist stuff already beginning to happen. There were li women's liberation groups and so on. But they weren't particularly politically active in the sense I wanted to be of changing things, and Women's Electoral Lobby was. It was set up, took an enormous rate, and we interviewed all of the politicians about their views on women, and some of them were really bizarre, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, about us all being the second sex sort of thing. And we actually published, we got the media, because it was very novel at that stage, to publish the things about some of the things that people said. And it was the election that Whitlam got in. So the whole thing sort of fed into that period of change that we got Whitlam of the women's movement sort of spread through 1972, all over Australia. We were quite successful in pushing various things in that. And when we came in, Whitlam was very aware of the fact that he'd done that. And one of the first things he did was to change the Pay Act to increase the people receiving equal pay for work of equal value. And well, the group I was involved in had been a big push thing behind that. And so there was a sense that we could do something. Sure. And it was very exciting. 1972, in addition yeah. to being the year of the ascent of uh, Whitland, was also... Well, Whitlam, we were part of that sort of sense sure. of change was it, possible, it, you know. It was also the year that uh, that Helen Reddy released yeah. a fairly important uh, single. This is an Australian, Australian yes. artist, Helen Reddy. Can you tell me about this track that we're going to play now? Well, I Am Woman 
came out around that time. And I mean, there was other stuff there, but this was a, this became a huge hit. And I think it's a symbol of a time when women had suddenly got really pissed off with being the second sex. And she said it. <laughs> anthem, I Am Woman, sung by Australian Helen Reddy. In an ideal world, it would be played on the hour every hour at (laughs) FBI Radio 94.5. But until that day comes, I'm relying on my out-of-the-box guest for a few moments longer, feminist and sociologist Eva Cox. Eva, have you you ever gone back to Australia, the the country that you were expelled from as a baby? 
I went back there in 1975, interestingly enough, uh, with my daughter, who was then 11, and we stayed in Vienna. And it was odd because when we got there, she was tired and I walked and I left her in the hotel and decided I'd go down and have a look at a bit of Vienna that I'd heard of from my parents. And I caught the tram and I've got very bad German. I can understand it, but I really revolted against learning it as a child, even because I thought it was a revolting language, uh, apart from the history. And But I was trying to work out where the Vienna Opera House was and the sort of centre of Vienna because I'd heard so much about it. And this older woman, she said, where are you from? And I said, Australia. And she said, where were you born? And I said, here in Vienna. And she said, when did you leave? And I said, 1939. And I mean, I was in around 40 at that stage and she must have been in her 60s. And she just stood there and her tears welled in her eyes and she said, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. She obviously worked out I was Jewish Mm. and that we'd been expelled from it. And it really stuck in my mind because, I mean, one of the questions I kept asking and one of the things that drives me is how can, and I raised it in the earlier thing when I talked about Vienna, how can civilised nations turn against groups of people within them to the point where they massacre them, literally? You know, it happened in Rwanda, you know, it happened in ex-Yugoslavia and things like that, so it's not the only time it's happened. And what really bugs me is if we look at some of the things, and I'm going to throw this one in, that were happening in Germany in the 1930s, which is the rise of distrust, the rise of populist parties, the rise of antagonisms to immigrants and outsiders. We're running that in an awful lot of countries today and we've got an awful lot of despot-type dictators coming into places like Poland, Hungary, Philippines and so on. So the question that always remains for me is the question that a woman called Hannah Arendt used to think is, you know, when she said, evil is not done by evil people... It's done by good people who don't think. And it really struck me that day in Vienna that what did happen? How could people dob in their neighbours? How could people send people to concentration camps and ignore the fact it was going on? And I think it's a very powerful thing to think about today because the level of distrust we've got at the moment of our politicians leaves people very vulnerable to be sort of taken up by the emotional thing of left and right Mm. dictatorships. Do you ever lament the fact that after this period of the 50s and 60s and 70s that you were so active in, in trying to create this uh, utopian (laughs) ideal of a a better world, that uh, after everything that was sort of achieved over such Mm. a short period, that things have kind of devolved? Or, I mean, do you even feel that? Do you agree with that? Oh, that- yes, yeah, so completely. I mean, I was furious because I actually was, you know, involved in things at that stage in the 1980s. Mm. What when went wrong? The, well, a lot of things went wrong, which I won't go into in all those details, but one of them was that international finance went international when the petrodollar people took control in the 1970s, so suddenly big business didn't need to keep support nation states anymore. Mm. You know, in... In the 80s, there were some problems around the sort of, you know, the future things. And I hate to say this, but, you know, countries picked up on the the left sort of lost its plot and started picking up on neoliberalism. Thatcher got in in Britain. Reagan got in in the USA. They both had big business behind them to cut taxes, cut all of the social programs, cut back what government did, move us from being citizens to customers and then leaving it all to the market to provide 
And it happened in Australia under Keating, and there lots of people will argue that Keating was a good guy. He was, but he believed in neoliberalism. It happened with Blair. It happened with Clinton. And since then, the alternative left side of politics has spent far more time bickering amongst itself and looking for any alternatives. And that scares the shit out of me. Mm. I don't want to see what's happened in there. I don't want to see what we do to refugees here. I just think we really need to pull ourselves together and start talking about utopia. And we don't know which utopia. And Oscar Wilde's got a nice way of describing that. He says, utopia is the next island to the one you just landed on. But you've got to have a sense that we can fix it. So I suppose I'm saying to the next generation, over to you, but I'm here to help. You're here to help. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. what, what is that? From from the perspective of someone that was involved in uh, the Australian left, uh, the international left at mm. a time when change was really happening, when it was very effective, when outcomes were, were, were being seen in the, in the most material mm. sense, what, what do you... Uh, I mean, what do you say to the left today, to the left in Australia, for example? You know, there are no shortage of issues that are being pursued. Get move away from bloody economics. It's, Marx did not have the answers. <laughs> Let's get back to social democracy because after the war, Roosevelt and uh, Churchill in 1941 did the, what was called the Atlantic Pact where they decided that if they wanted to stop the sorts of things that had happened in the 1930s when fascism and communism as authoritarian systems rose, you needed a welfare state. And they brought in the welfare state. And ever since 1980, we've been undermining it. And that causes people to lose trust and to start being suspicious of other people. And we've got to get back to the fact that we live in a society. We've got to stop thinking we live in an economy. We've got to stop the government assuming they can bribe us with tax cuts. We've got to get back to the fact that we've got good community services, that people share things, that we trust our neighbours and we trust our governments, because otherwise we're putting it elegantly, we're fucked. Am I allowed to say that on air? <laughs> Why not? Are there, are there places where you... Uh they give you optimism for the future? Are there things that we can reflect on or look at that... There are lots of things starting in little bits and pieces. The big institutions and some of the big so-called progressive move things are organising social movements of varying sorts could do it, but they're scared. They're gutless. They keep saying, ah, oh, but, you know, we, we have, we're protesting. And you say, yeah, but having protested against X... Can you suggest a solution? And they look at me and say, why are you asking us? So I very elegantly say, who the fuck else is going to do it? Because there aren't people out there looking at solutions. We're too pessimistic. We know what we don't want, but we've got to start working out what we do want. And we've got to do it so that we feel like optimists. Optimists are the basis of change. Pessimism is the basis for bad change. And your generation needs to think about it because I think a lot of them don't see you know, they watch dystopian movies all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Eva, before I run out of the studio and start a revolution on the streets, how, how can we finish this momentous episode of Out of the Box today? Well, I was trying to think of a good thing to start it on, and I came back to that very moving French anthem, which starts off with aux armes citoyens. <laughs> and I thought that says to arms, citizens, but let's not use our arms to to kill each other, let's use our arms to link up and set up a good, collective, social, fair society. <laughs> uh, I'd just like to say an um, uh, enormous thank you to my producers, uh, Bree and Nicole and Eva Cox. Thank you very much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. Thank you too. <laughs> 
Ces féroces soldats, ils viennent jusque dans vos bras, égorger vos fils, vos compagnes. Aux armes citoyens, formez vos bataillons, marchons, marchons, de leur survivre que de partager leur cercueil nous aurons le sublime orgueil de les venger ou de les suivre aux armes citoyens formez vos bataillons marchons marchons Ces phalanges mercenaires terrasseraient nos fiers guerriers, terrasseraient nos fiers guerriers. Grand Dieu, par des mains enchaînées, nos fronts sous le joug toiré, de villes despotes deviendraient les moteurs de nos destinées. Formez vos bataillons, marchons, marchons, quinze ans qu'impurs, Amour sacré de la patrie, conduit soutien nos bravangeurs, liberté, liberté chérie. Combats avec tes défenseurs, combats avec tes défenseurs. Sous nos drapeaux, que la victoire accourt à tes mâles accents. Que tes ennemis expirants voient ton triomphe et notre gloire. Aux armes citoyens, Marchons, marchons, quinze ans qu'impurs, à
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.